Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day, this first Sunday of Advent, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Greetings. Greetings. It's so wonderful to see Mrs. Kilmer here up on the front row, worshiping the Lord with us. Amen. 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 The Lord has been good. So look around. Things are a little different. Uh, Mrs. Robinette was over here yesterday putting out a few things, trying to make things look a little bit different. Banners are up. The uh, Advent banners are up. Uh, In the coming weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be reminded what the world was thinking and how they were feeling for 4,000 years. Could you imagine living during that time? They were told that something good was coming, and a thousand years went by, (laughs) and then another thousand, and then another thousand. That's a long time, right? So they waited for the coming of the Christ child to save them from the world of sin and death, and He was then and He still is now the hope of everything good. Amen? Amen. Because not only has He come already, but He's going to come again. He's coming again every day in our lives. uh, And we know there will be a time uh, at the end of time at the consummation of all things. So each week of Advent we will gather together. We'll be focusing on different aspects of waiting This year, the focus in this order, as it always is, is hope. Everybody say hope. Hope. Faith. Faith. Joy. Joy. And love. Love. And we're going to talk about hope in the Psalms. We're going to talk about how this doctrine, this uh, optimistic doctrine of the conquering Christ is taught in the Psalms. And we'll work our way through faith in the Psalms, joy in the Psalms. Joy won't be hard in the Psalms. Do you think so? A lot, of, a lot of clapping, a lot of dancing, a lot of excitement in the Psalms. You know, that, that, that makes me think there might should be some of that here. Amen? If God's songbook has joy and it has faith and it has hope, it should be in our hearts too. Amen? Amen. So each week we will light one of the four candles around the Advent wreath here. And on our fourth and final week of Advent, our final Lord's Day, it'll just be two days before Christmas Eve. And on Christmas Eve, we'll gather together, and many uh, of the young people and uh, have have. And are there some old people too, uh, who are going to be playing some musical instruments? And we'll have a little program here together where we do mostly some singing, a little bit of talking, uh, but we will light that middle candle, which will represent Christ uh, at that time. 
We are a hopeful people. Amen? Amen. We believe that Jesus wins. I I love someone was summing up their theology. uh, there There are some theologies that said Jesus loses before he wins. Jesus loses before he loses. But then there's what we believe. Jesus wins before Jesus wins. Amen? Don't you like that better? Yeah, you know, uh, I do. So today, as God calls us to worship, we're going to hear a psalm, Psalm 72. I'm going to be preaching uh, from several of the psalms, from Psalm 2, from Psalm 72, from Psalm 110. But 72 is a really, really powerful psalm of hope here. So let me read it for us today as our call to worship, okay? Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people and he shall save the children of the needy and he shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. Is that a pretty long time, you think? Yeah, I think so. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer their gifts. Yea, all kings. Everybody say all kings. All kings kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from the deceit and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. He shall live, and in him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the tops of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever and ever. His name shall, be, shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him Blessed blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who doeth wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So let us pray now. Lord God, we thank you for calling your people into this building, into this place that we have dedicated to your service and your worship. We pray today, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would forgive our sins. Lord, that you would cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Lord, that you would feed us from heaven, for we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And your word says that we shall be filled. Fill us today. Change us so that we might be more like you. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. In Christ's name, all God's people said a hearty amen and amen.
remain standing for just a little bit, I'm going to read for you eight verses, which actually have already been read, but I'm going to read them again from Psalm 72. My sermon today is called An Eschatology of Hope in the Psalms. If you don't know what eschatology it is, it is, uh, it is the doctrine of what we believe is going to happen next. Okay? We're looking, as we look forward in history, what do we believe is happening now and will happen next? My sermon is called An Eschatology of Hope that is found in the Psalms. Text is Psalm 72, and I will read verses 1 through 8. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people and he shall save the children of the needy and he shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish an abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. And he shall have dominion also from the sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Lord, I pray today as we look into your word that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to have a proper attitude and a posture towards what to expect in our coming future. Lord, that we would live in such a way as to proclaim the coming of your kingdom, Lord, that we would live with optimism and excitement about the work that you are doing to save the world. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I have told you before, during this special time of the year, we try to do our best to imagine what it must have been like for the people uh, of the entire world and for Israel as they waited for the coming of the Messiah to save them from their sins. Here in our text, we hear incredible words of hope in here in Psalm 72. You may wonder when it mentions in Psalm 72 about the poor What's, what, why is that? Why is God talking about the poor? Well, the poor in the world are not used to really getting fair treatment. If you are a wealthy man and you commit a crime and you can afford the proper attorneys, then guess what happens for you? Different than what happens for the man who cannot. He gets a public defender or maybe he tries to defend himself and without the influence and without the skill of a good lawyer, things don't really work out. Not only do things not work out in that sense, but people regard the poor and people that are insignificant, they do not regard them the way God does. Does God look at people and see that some are insignificant? No, in fact, he tells us to be careful about doing that when we come into our assembly. Because if we do that, then we are not doing what God wants us to do. God does not look on man and judge him based on uh, the position he's achieved in life, the money he may have amassed around himself. God looks at a man's heart. And God actually calls us to try to do the same. Do we do that? On this first week of Advent, we always remember the darkness that came into the world through the very first man, Adam. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, the world seemed hopeless. In a sense, right now, isn't that kind of how we sort of feel? We 
we can be tempted to look around and, and we can say, oh, look, look at the bad things that are happening here and the bad things that are happening there and, and the news is all about death and destruction and war and, and poverty. But the depths of despair that they experienced are impossible for us really to imagine because we really never lived in a world of beauty, perfection, and loveliness, right? Here they were in a world, you know, we thought it was nice when we went on our honeymoon back in 1996, right? We went to a place where there were no spiders and snakes in, uh, in, in, out there on the island of Kauai. That was nice. The Bible tells us that in the time where Adam and Eve lived, they lived in a garden where there was no sin, there was no death, there was no sickness, there was no harm. Can you imagine it? The answer is no. We actually, we can't imagine it. But try to at least sort of get your mind around the fact that these two immortals had the opportunity not only to have all that good stuff and not have the sins of the world around them, but they had the opportunity to walk and talk freely with God Almighty. Could you imagine that? To be able to just go, hey God, how you doing? And, and God would be like, it's a great day. Why don't you go out here and see what wheat will do? Grind it up and see what happens. Grind it up, mix it with a little bit of water. Build a little fire. Watch what happens. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to be have God walk and talk with you and introduce you to the glories of His creation? I mean, we wonder about things, but Adam could ask, Ashley, what did you make wheat for, God? Oh, I made it because of this stuff called bread. You know? It's bread like, oh, wait till you smell it. Wait till you taste it. Wait till you figure out what... Milk can turn into when you churn it and you can put some butter on the bread and it'll be warm in your mouth. Could you imagine? And you might say this. God didn't do this stuff. I think he did. How on earth could you how on earth could you figure these hard wheat berries on the ends of a grass out in there could be ground up and could be baked into something that tastes so wonderful as bread? Accidentally, I don't think so. But the depths of their despair is impossible for us to imagine. What a wonderful world it must have been. And when they sinned, paradise was truly lost. After Adam and Eve sinned, we know that they were banished from, not only from this garden that was theirs that God had made for them, but they were banished from the very presence of God. And death was the ultimate result of their sin. No other saw disparity between these two worlds as keenly as Adam and Eve did. They must have felt very hopeless because guess what, guys? Who's most responsible? I mean, bad thing, when bad things happen, Christina, it's one thing. When bad things happen because of you, everybody say, that's a whole nother thing. Don't you ever look at your children and go, they're like that because of me. You, you ever do that? Like if I would have just been more diligent or paid more attention or if I would have taught them discipline or if, or if I would have really led them in what it means to love people. Maybe they would, rather than loving themselves. Draped in the skin of animals that had to die. You know, I know, did you, I don't know, did you do good hunting? Did you kill some stuff, right? And as, and as neat as it is to kill stuff and to eat it, and I'm into that, done that plenty of times, there's just a sadness in it for me. And maybe that just because I'm a little bit of a sissy. I don't know. But when I see the animal that was like... Like, I love to see those deer, and I see their little tail, they twitch, you know, and, and their ears, the way they move, and, and they walk. And, and I'm like, they don't even know they're about to die. Right? I've done it. 
There's an ugliness that comes. And here they were. They, God had them not only realize that these animals had to die, but they had to wear their skin around so they wouldn't forget it. They couldn't. This is what nakedness was covered for. It was covered with the skins of these animals to remind them that death came because of them. God didn't want them to get comfortable with the fact that things die. I'm not comfortable with it. It's terrible. When the people that we love, people that we've talked to, and people that we've we've had deep fellowship and relationship, right, Brother Jason? Right, you know, when they die, it's just, it's crushing. Why? When we know everybody's going to die. Why? Because death was never part of the picture of what man was supposed to live in. In them shame, separation, the worst of all death slithered into paradise and the Eden of their whole world. When Eve strained and struggled and labored with their firstborn, wondering if she was going to die herself in the process, maybe thinking, hey, maybe this is what this death is. I don't know. But this is horrible. This is painful. Oh, no. And then, of course, the little baby came. There must have been a spark of hope when they saw this first baby. You know, imagine it. Imagine holding little Cain. And he's so cute. And, and wow. And, and wow, look, he looks like you, Adam. And, and they're holding him, and he's cute, and, you know, they, oh, look, he wants to suck on my finger, and, and she picks him up, and she holds him, oh, wait a minute, and she discovers what her body's for, and wow, an amazing thing that must have been. But what hope brought through this child turned into darkness as he followed his own will, and he was ruled by his anger. That's why Pastor Mark doesn't want the little kids of our children to be ruled by anger. That's right, Titus. What happened when he got mad at his brother? He whacked him. How many of you have gotten mad and whacked your brother? Yeah. Do you know you could whack your brother and accidentally kill your brother? And you know, we think of Cain as this nasty, horrible, terrible person. He's evil. And really all he did is what you did. You know, he didn't even know what was going to happen. He'd never seen anything like that. He'd never seen that a man could die. He may not have even believed it was possible. Imagine Adam and Eve having to watch that. All Adam's children were born into this world of death and darkness. Not one of Adam and Eve's children would live forever, of course. Their world was lost. Instead of living forever, now it seemed that they were cursed to die forever and watch helplessly as the world around them turned into ugliness that they could have never dreamed. Animals who were, had been content maybe to eat grass were eating each other. And even in the darkness of this day and of their curses, we know that God struck a match of hope. He told them things are not always going to be like this, right? He said one day there would be one that would be born from your body that was going to change everything. A Savior would be born. We call this the proto-gospel. It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's part of the curse even. A Savior would be born and he would crush the head of the serpent who beguiled you, Eve. This is what the whole season of Advent is about. The waiting period for 4,000 years. They kept looking there. They kept saying, is he here yet? This is, we're, we're tired of this. We're tired of armies and, and swords. And, and, and we're, we're tired of not being able to lay our heads down in peace at night. And, and we're tired of wondering if when we send our kids down to the, to the, to the field, are they going to come back alive? They're tired of this. And, and death is a horrible, horrible thing. We know that this hope passed from Seth on generation to generation to a times where there again was no hope. 
We know that, that as hopeful as it was when Seth had been born, we know that at the time of Noah, the desperation and sinfulness had multiplied to a horrible thing because God had a chosen people and God's chosen people decide to mix with the people of the world who were ungodly, who had followed after the way of the murdering Cain. And the Bible tells us the world was filled with violence. And God looked at it and he was disgusted by it. And he sent a flood to destroy everything. God kept hope alive though through Noah and his family. Hope passed through Noah's son Shem from generation to generation. And on the man that we talked about and we often talk about in this church, Abraham. God promised this father of the faithful Father of those who would walk by faith and not by sight. He promised them that out of his body would one day come hope. And he reminded them of the hope as he made promises to them. Would his son, would his son that was born be that hope? And then God sends him out to kill his firstborn son. This is a, this is, well, not his first, his firstborn son between Abraham and Sarah. God promised this man who had no country that his offspring would multiply and become a nation. That all the land could see would one day belong to his people. He did not live to see the hope though. The Bible tells us that Abraham did not. We actually went to uh, Nathaniel and Benjamin and I went to the cave where Abraham is buried and Isaac is buried and Jacob is buried and their wives are buried and that little cave was that first piece of land that they were given. That's all they got of the promise. But the Bible says they didn't get it because one day we were going to get it. Not only as far as he could see, but the Bible tells us that we're going to gain the whole world. Amen? Amen. From Abraham to Isaac, the miracle child of his old age, then to Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God and became Israel. And this boy, Israel, became the father of a nation. This tiny nation of 12 sons perished, would have perished in Egypt, but God sent Joseph People even wondered, is he the Savior? He's going to, and he did. He brought salvation. He saved them from the famine, but he was not the one. In Egypt, this small family became a nation, and God led them out as he took them out of the, the representation of sin, of slavery, and he brought them into this land that he had already promised to, to Abraham. And he led them out by Moses. And as they did, they wondered, is he the one? Is he going to be the one? And everybody say, he wasn't the one. He was a picture of the one who was to come, but he was not the one. And now the nation after Moses had died, Joshua led the people for a while, and God began to use prophets and, and, and great religious leaders to lead them. And they had Samuel leading them. God gave them, though, this king. They wanted a king. They said, we want a king like the other nations have. And he, they gave them, God gave them Saul. Saul wasn't the one. God gave them David. Was David the one? Everybody say David was not the one. You see, the only real hope is Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah. But all of these men kept bringing hope. Now, the deal is, is they waited for hope, but we're not waiting anymore. And sometimes we live as though we're still waiting on the hope to come. But the hope already came. But that's what this time was about. They were waiting. They were hoping. Only when God touches the stony heart of man and enlivens it with the Spirit, that's the only hope that we have. We're all, the Bible says, we're men. We're dead men walking around. When we put our hope in things and in people, 
when we hope in things, what do we end up wanting? We end up wanting more things. Things are not the answer, right? But throughout 6,000 years of earth's history, there have been times of great darkness, but God's word always hold hope. Many today preach doom and gloom, and they say it's going to come. They say they're always looking around the corner for the destruction of this and the end of this. And, and this has actually uh, come because of the church has adopted this idea that we're going to lose. That, that what's going to happen, the earth is going to get worse and people are going to, they're, they're, they're going to wax worse, which is from the scriptures. This actually was being applied to a different time period, but they are waxing worse now. Men will wax worse, things are going to get bad, and when the world is so horrible, it's going to be again like it was with Noah, God is going to take us out and destroy the earth. Do you know that's not the message of the Bible? The message of the Bible. You see, Noah couldn't save the world. Moses could not save the world. David could not save the world. But let me tell you, Brother Luke, Jesus can save the world. The world is not going to be overrun by evil. The world is not going to be overtaken by the sin that, yes, we see it working its way into the lives of many people, but that is not the end of our story. You see, they failed because they were not the Christ. And this Advent season reminds us that they waited and they waited, but we are waiting no more. This great biblical truth sparks powerful light in the darkness of doom and it comes straight from the Psalter we were, we're working our way through all of the Psalms I'm telling you by the time we reach Psalm 50 I'm telling you Andrea there may be a literal spontaneous human combustion that happens around here <laughs> most of us have heard the words of Psalm 2 we just talked about them just a little bit ago this is the very Part, the very first part of the Psalms, Brother Steve, where we see this doctrine. You know, God didn't wait till Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 20 to introduce this, but right at the very beginning. And I really believe, as I taught you before, that Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are really kind of one Psalm. It teaches us about the blessed man, and then Psalm 2 tells us who the blessed man is, you know? So David declares his rhetorical question as a statement of the greatness of God when he asks the questions, Why? Do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Their imaginations are silly, right? He sets the record straight on who is really in control here on earth with a bravado like a man uh, like David could only give. He was used by God as a prophet to speak of the hope of all the ages that would one day come. And in Psalm 2, he asked, why do the heathen rage? He said, the kings of the earth, they set themselves. The rulers, they take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. This word anointed is where we get the, the word anointed or the Messiah. And so David is, doesn't realize this. David may have been thinking of himself here. He was anointed, of course, by Samuel. He was God's anointed. But we understand that this theology that God develops through David and through the prophets of the theology of an anointed one coming. Yes, David was anointed with oil by Samuel. But there would be one who would be anointed by God Himself, whose kingdom would have no end. Amen? He said, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, come, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from them. What does he in heaven, what does he do about that, Jonathan? Is he worried? Does he fret? Is he like, oh no, oh no, they're going to mess everything up. The Bible says, no, he that sits in the heaven, Stephen, he's going to laugh. 
And before long, he will mock them. Why? Folks, there is no power that God has not given. There is nothing that God has... Even the devil. Read about it in Job. Even the devil has to get permission to do what he does. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He will judge them. He then recommends that all submit willingly. Right? That's what Psalm 2 is about. Psalm is like, you you need to understand, he's in charge. If you don't understand, you're going to find out. And so what you need to do is you need to submit right now. I love that passage in Psalm 72 that I already read. That it doesn't say that the kings of the earth shall bow their knee. What does it say? It says that they shall fall prostrate on the ground before the king. That's better than bowing a knee. Amen? They will fall down flat on their faces before our God. I've set my holy king upon, I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the degree. This day the Lord hath said unto thee, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. If you're wondering if this theology is tight, if it's correct, if I'm speaking out of turn, you can read about it right there. Who is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth? It's Christ Himself. That's what's being talked about. These words of the New Testament come straight out of Psalm 2. God is helping us understand that the theology of Psalm 2 was lived out in the life of the Messiah that would come. This obvious prophetic reference to Christ, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And I love what he says, Brother Jason. He says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. You see, God wasn't just giving them actually some place over in the Middle East. He wasn't just giving them dominion over a few people over here and over there. But where? All of them. You'll see this has developed more in the psalm. God said He will give His Son the heathen. He will give them the uttermost parts of the earth. Everybody say the uttermost parts of the earth. This is very important because God had been dealing with uh, man through a people, through the children of Israel specifically. And so when he says the uttermost parts of the earth, and when he says the heathen, he's expanding his reign from not just over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of all. He said, Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a, a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with thee and perish from the way, lest His wrath be kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. This is certainly no doubt but that the psalm would be fulfilled at the coming of the Messiah. He would set this new king of the earth over Mount Zion, representing God's covenant people in Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the mountain, the two-peak mountain in Jerusalem, where the temple, uh, where the, the tabernacle was erected and where the temple would be built later when David was king. He would rule the nations, it says, with a rod of iron. According to Revelation 1.5, not only would Messiah be the faithful witness of the firstborn of the dead, it says, but he will rule over all of the kings of the earth. Say, Jesus rules over all the kings of the earth. Many Christians believe that when Messiah would come, that he would indeed be the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, right? Any, does any Christians not believe that? That he's the firstborn of the dead? That he's a witness? Everyone believes that, right? But they don't believe the last part. Somehow he would not be the ruler of the earth right away. That is, it would be figurative. It would be delayed for thousands of years. Much of the church still thinks this. And, but there's nothing in the scriptures to 
support this idea. He that is the witness that is faithful, he that is the firstborn of the dead is also king of the earth right now. Here in the Psalms, this beautiful bridge of hope is spanned between Adam's curse and the promise of the coming chosen one in the new covenant. God's rule from the very beginning was over everything in the world. And for this reason, when Adam sinned, it affected everything. This is why the promise of the coming of Messiah included a change in everything, every area of life, not just saving our souls and not just for heaven that was to come, but God's kingdom come and his will be done on on earth as it is in heaven. It seems that nowhere else in the Old Testament is the bridge between the curse and the covenant brought to bear more than in the next psalm that we will briefly look at, Psalm 22. Here, as we talked about a few weeks ago in my sermon, Killing Our King, David, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, envisions Jesus crucified in vivid detail. Remember, we talked about this a lot, and we won't get into the great detail of it, but you but you can't read Psalm 22 and not understand the subject matter is Christ, the Messiah on the cross. I'll read a couple of those verses. For This is verses 16 and 18 of Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Can we say this is anybody but Jesus? Of course it's Jesus, right? What did they do? They cast lots. What did they do? They pierced his hands. What did they do? They stared at him. What did his skin look like? The Bible says, you know, he was emaciated. He was there. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was scorned. They were staring at him. Later in the psalm, we can see the result of his coming. Not just that they would kill him. Not just that they would mock him. Not that they would do these things. But it says in Psalm 22, uh, and it goes on in verse 27 and 8, it said, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules the nations. Hear the theology once again from Psalm 22. We can see the psalm teaches that Messiah will bring about the conversion of the whole world. Everybody believes that Jesus will, uh, that he came and he was going to die on the tree. Everybody believes that Psalm 22 talks about it. But it seems like the second... Half of Psalm 22 is something that they only believe is going to happen one day in heaven, okay? But listen to the imagery. The imagery is not of heaven. The imagery is of the earth. Is there going to be a moon in heaven? Are there going to be people being sick and dying? Are there going to be heathens in heaven? I don't think so, okay? What this means is that every part of the earth will turn and follow Messiah. All nations will worship Him. Because he will rule them. The language plainly says here, from every tribe and every nation. Not just uh, a one or two, but that God is going to rule entire nations. Talk about hope. Could you imagine singing this song at a real hopeless time, being Israel? Here they are. They're wondering if their nation's even going to last. They're in a horrible time. The nation's divided. They're, some people are worshiping up uh, you know, with the Samaritans on, on the different mountain and others are worshiping in Jerusalem. They're probably feeling like this is not going to work, right? And at times they would go to this psalm and they would say, oh no, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when a king is going to come and he's not just going to rule all of Israel, he's going to rule the whole wide world. Amen. We have certainly seen this and I believe that we will see more of this. When you think of America, even though people say it's not anymore, you can say America is a Christian nation. 
Yes, America has a lot of repenting to do, but there are nations of the world, and they put, if you were going to say, what are you? Are you a Christian nation? Are you a Muslim nation? We know the nations of the world that are Christian nations. Yes, we have a lot of repenting to do, but we indeed have nations, entire nations. Isn't that an amazing thing? All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those that go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even those who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. So will people be dying in heaven? Everybody say, no one dies in heaven. So he's saying people are living and dying. People are suffering. When is this happening? Is this happening in heaven? Everybody say, nope, happening on earth. That's why Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people that will be born. Will there be children born in heaven? I don't think so. The Bible says people will not be getting married. Psalm 22, verses 22 through 31 is what I just read. So here, see, the psalmist is referring to a period when new generations are yet to be born will serve the Messiah. The prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. The Messiah's kingdom will extend over the nations of the earth for generations as rules generations of people, not only nations, but generations of nations. People are eating, people are worshiping, people are dying, people are being born. This doesn't happen in heaven. Listen to a few more words from Psalm 72. They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endures. What time period is the sun and the moon enduring? On earth. The Bible says at the end of things, there won't even need to be a sun. There won't even need to be a moon, right? And that that'll be over. But he said, as long as the sun and moon endures throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before it's being mowed. Like showers of water in his days, the righteous shall flourish and there be an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. You may say, you know, this is just words. No, God is, God's word is very particular in what it says. In Psalm 72, it seems to refer to the present life within history because it speaks of all of these things. Sun, moon, generations. It connects this idea that you see rivers and seas and wilderness and the enemies of God bowing down and offering Him gifts. Many of people take, you know the song, We Three Kings of Orientar, they take from Psalm 72 this idea. And they say that there were kings that came and that this is when this is... This is fulfilled. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish of the Isles will be in presence. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him. That's Psalm 72, 8, verses 11. As it continues, we see the Abrahamic promises and their fulfillment in the coming of the Son of God, and that in him will all the nations be blessed. David, Abraham had had this promise, right? It was also carried on with David as well. But when God had the promise to Abraham, in you shall all the earth be blessed. We see this, his name, verses, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. This is Jesus fulfilling what Abraham's promise was promised to Abraham. Psalm 72 continues as we see something even more glorious than nations even more glorious than people, we see that the whole earth will be filled with His glory. Not just some of it, but all of it. Everybody say, all of it. All of it. 
Verses 18 and 19 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. And let the whole earth, everybody say the whole earth. And let the whole earth, we sing it in our carols, right? And let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Then why should we believe anything less than that? Looking forward to the psalm, God's anointed will have dominion over the whole world. As Revelation 16, 16 says unequivocally, Messiah is, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords. You may think of it as a title, and you may miss the meaning of the title. If he's king of all the other kings, and if he's Lord of all the other lords, that's the whole world, folks. But how will it come to pass? The Apostle Paul taught this incredible revelation how God the Father puts all things under the feet of the Messiah. I read this all the time. I memorized it when I was a kid. It is one of the most exciting passages that there is in the Bible. Paul prays. He said, if God would help you to understand who you are, you would live and you would think differently every single day. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1. He pray, I pray that you may know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us? Who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at in the, His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, far above all, every name that is named, all ruler, dominion, and might, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And it put all things under his feet and given him the head over all things to the... Do you guys know what comes next? To the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. You know, we get together and sometimes we think church is something we go to. And we miss the fact that you don't find completeness without being in the church. Being in the body of Christ. It is how we will be saved. That's why the devil doesn't want you in it. He wants you outside of it. He wants you at His mercy. And God says, I want you to come in to the church. Because if you understood what it was, it would be worth the fact that you don't like some of the people. It would be worth that some of the people don't like you. It would be worth the fact that they're a little bit irritating and they're sinful. And we can forgive each other because guess what? You know what? If there's only one boat and it gets us off of the Titanic and keeps us from plunging in an icy Atlantic, we can probably get along long enough to float to safety. Amen? I'm telling you, that is what the church is. It's not a bunch of people that you were all singing Kumbaya, Carrie. Oh, we just, we're so happy. We're all glad we're, we all get along. No. We're just a bunch of sinners all stuck in the same boat. And what God can do with us is He can say, you know, I forgave you. Maybe you should forgive each other. I loved you. Maybe you should love each other. You know, you're all being saved from the same destruction. Can't you just enjoy your time in the boat because you're on your way to safety, you bunch of knuckleheads? I'm telling you, that's the glorious church. Sometimes my wife and I, we... You know, we're dealing with a lot of different things in other churches, and we will just go, is everybody messed up? And you know what I always say, Andy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're so much more messed up than you know. Honey, I don't, even, I don't even tell my sweet wife some things now. It's the first time in my life I don't tell her some things. The world is filled with sinfulness, and guys, I'm telling you, that's the glory of God. He takes sinners who are wretched, 
who are paltry, who are poor, like in Laodicea. He goes, you know what? You bunch of people in Laodicea, you think that you're rich. You think that you're increasing good. You think you have need of nothing. But yet, what are you? You are miserable, and you are blind, and you are wretched, and you are poor. And ask of me gold, and I will give you gold. I'm the one that has the gold, not you. Folks, I'm telling you, that's us. If ever there was a people that are blessed and increased and have more, oh my word, you don't even know how rich you are. And your your wealth has deceived you. It has made you go, we don't I don't need any of those people. Oh, God has something wonderful for us. If we just realize how poor we are, how wretched, how in need, not only of him, but of each other, we are. As we come back to the Psalms, we look at the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. If there's one Psalm that's quoted more than any in the New Testament, how many people raise their hand, they ought to know it. Even more than that, Brother Andy, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage. The New Testament quotes a passage over and over again, more than any other passage, not only of the Psalms, but of any passage in the Old Testament. We should know what it is. It's Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is without question the most important messianic psalm when it comes to the great hope of the coming dominion over the nations. Psalm 110 verses 1 through 2 said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Does anybody think for a moment that Jesus is praying prayers and somehow they're not being answered? Does anybody think for a minute that Jesus wants to save the world and He just can't? Does anybody think for a minute that He's going to fail if He started to do something? Everybody say, Jesus never fails. You know, we sing the song as, as if you know we're kind of sad. Jesus never fails. That, that, that's, we, we really need a different tune for that. Jesus never fails! You know, I don't know. But he doesn't fail. I know, everything is failure now, you know. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to ruin that song for you. But, but Jesus doesn't fail. He isn't going to fail in saving the world. He isn't going to fail in saving your children. He isn't going to fail in redeeming every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every people for his glory. And the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the earth. And we can walk around with our heads hung down like it isn't going to happen. But I'm going to tell you, if you believe God's word you won't you'll walk around going he's gonna do it and he's gonna do it through me i'm pathetic i'm wretched i'm poor but i know the king of kings and the lord of lords who owns all the gold and i'm going to go to him and buy gold the bible said if we lay up treasures on this earth where thieves can break in and steal where moths can corrupt and we're foolish but if we lay up our treasures in heaven they'll never be taken away from us Acts chapter 2, Peter the Apostle, preaching on the day of Pentecost, spoke of David the prophet. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that by the fruit of his body, according to his flesh. Folks, this is the first message ever preached to the church. I'm expecting just as I am to be sung here, and it's not. I'm expecting someone to go, do you know Jesus loves you? And if you would love him, everything would be okay. That's what I'm expecting. Could you please give your life to Jesus? Oh, he's going to be so sad if you don't. Give Jesus a Christmas present this year. 
Offer Him your heart. That is not the first message of the church. The message is Jesus came. He was King of kings, Lord of lords, and you killed Him. And the judgment of God is waiting for you. Well, I don't want to say that to people. That wouldn't be nice. He would raise up Christ to sit in his throne. This is, what, this is what Peter is saying. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his soul was not left in the grave. His flesh did not see corruption. You killed him, but he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead, and he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords, and nothing you could do would stop it. Amen. Folks, people miss this. They're, they're not going, uh, I'd like to sign the deal, I'd like to join up. No, no, no. When they want to know what they must do to be saved, I can tell you, they're not thinking saved like you're thinking. If you found out that you had angered the king, the most powerful king on earth, and he was coming to turn you into a greasy spot, and you just realized that, that, he, that he sent his son to offer you salvation and to give good gifts to you and you kicked him and you spit on him and you made fun of him and you mocked him and yeah, you killed him but he rose from the dead and he's coming back. How, what do you think? What, would you be like, you know, I just want to know what, what things I need to do to become a member. That, no, no, no. They want to be saved. In, in Acts chapter 16, when the, the, the house of the Philippian jailer was saying, what must we do to be saved? He's not talking about be saved in heaven. He's saying we're about to be killed. You can't be a jailer and let the people out of your jail. And he's saying, oh, they're wanting to be, that's the kind of salvation they were looking for. These guys were looking for the salvation from the judgment of a living, fire-breathing God. Jesus, God raised him up. We are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out that which you have seen and heard. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until what? This is the last, the last bit. Of, until my enemies are made my footstool. I'm going to step on you. You're going to be a greasy spot under my foot. And then they said, is there something we can do about this? Hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. We killed the wrong guy. He's like, yeah, you can repent. You can accept, you, you can bow down to, and offer king, offer him to be your king. You can bring to the waters of baptism and let them signify that you want to be washed with his blood, that you cannot be made clean with your own righteousness and you can't be saved from your own goodness. You're going to need to be filled with a new spirit because the spirit you have is dead with the Holy Ghost and let me tell you what your future is going to be Jonathan he said and this to you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our John called isn't that a more beautiful more powerful more direct example of what this gospel is according to the prophecy had been filled in the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Christ the key phrases of David's prophecy indicate the place from where Christ was to rule and the time period in which his rule was to take place. He was to rule from the right hand of God. It is a clear indication of Christ's rule over the nations that occurs prior to the second coming because he is seated at the right hand of God. Throughout the New Testament, Christ is always when he is seen. Stephen is, is dying. He looks up and where does he see Jesus? Why is he? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou here at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make. Do you think God is going to fail at making any of Christ's enemies 
his footstool. Everybody say, God is not going to fail. Till I make your enemies your footstool. This one little adverb, this Greek word ad or till or until indicates a time period in which the rulership of Christ from heaven was to take place until God the Father places Christ's enemies under his feet. In other words, though Christ triumphed over sin, the world and the devil at his crucifixion and the resurrection, Christ will remain in heaven until all his enemies are subdued. Until finally that process is complete. The last enemy, as Paul writes, being death itself at the time of the general resurrection. So if Christ is in heaven, then how exactly does he make his resurrection known? The answer is found right here in this verse, same verse. This is the phrase that may also be translated God's mighty scepter. Where God rules with a rod or a mighty scepter. It's of course a symbol throughout the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit inspired here. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the church acts as ambassadors as we spread the good news of the reign of Christ. As we go forth into the nations in power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the great commission. So really the question is this, what kind of gospel are we preaching? Are we preaching a begging, pleading, join, sign on the dotted line kind of a thing? Or are we preaching a gospel that declares that Jesus is King, He is Lord, obey Him, follow Him, serve Him? Do we see the divine King who really rules with a rod of iron over the nations? who transmits his invincible power to the church? Or are we offering real hope in the, only in the sweet by and by? I'm telling you there is hope. We can, by God's grace, bring Mount Sterling or Five Points or wherever we live in our lifetimes under the rule of Christ. Amen. We can show them what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. We can, we can show them what it means to obey God's commands and the power of how that will transform the world into a garden of loveliness when people are kind to each other and forgiving one another and we usher this forth. But folks, if it isn't happening in this little group right here, don't, don't imagine it'll happen out there. It's hard loving your neighbor. It's hard. You know, I talked to Luke earlier. So I can't imagine anybody I love as much as Luke. But it's easy. The devil can get in between us and, and cause trouble. It's easy for him to do this because we're so sinful Folks, we have to be, be aware of our enemy's devices against us. And we have to just say, you know what? I don't care what Luke does to me or what Luke says to me. I love him. And, and that's just the end of it all. That's what we do. That's what Luke's got to do with me. Because I'd like run over him like a steamroller half the time. And he's like, well, I love him. Steamroller, steamroller, right? That's what we got to do. That's what the call of the church is, is to, is to try our best to bring the rule of Christ at our house. In our church, you know, in the little house that you two have together, how can Christ lord over that home? That's what God wants us to do. And when Christ is lord over our homes and he's lord over our church, he'll become lord over all the nations. Amen? Amen. That is hope. That works. You're not going to make everybody, you're not gonna, if you formed an army and made everybody do it, if you do like, you know, in Islam where they cut your hand off if you don't obey or they throw you off buildings or whatever, that's not going to make people's, that's not going to change people's hearts. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's not going to get it done. 
But I'll tell you what, God's word says that the power of love to change the world and the power of the Holy Spirit to do it through the church is a power that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this great hope, this hope that we celebrate today on this first week of Advent. We remember that they had hope for it, but we are now living in the time of that hope. That, Lord, we can declare a gospel of hope. We don't have to timidly offer our responses as though somehow maybe they're not good enough, but we can offer with great assurance that the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with thee, and we perish, or lest we, He vex us in His sore displeasure when He's angry with us just a little. May we kiss the Son and bow down before Him, and may we do that in our relationships with our wives and our husbands and uh, in our church with our children, and oh God, then we'll see it come to pass in the nations of the world. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.